So here, all the previous teaching of the epistle of Hebrews reached their climax because the priesthood of Christ is the most distinguishing doctrine or theme of this letter. Now I want you to look at this. We have such a high priest in the verse. If you look back a little bit in verse 26 of chapter 7, we have the same sentence. Verse 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we have such a high priest. Let's turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 8. And today we're going to start looking at the new covenant. I wanted to cover this in one sermon, but I might do a part two. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these glorious truths we find in your word. Lord, when I think of all these, Lord, and, and here I am um, sharing your word you, with, uh, to your people, Lord. I can only say who are sufficient for these things. But, Lord, we want to hear you speak to your people. So speak to your church. Help us to fall on our knees and worship you and glorify Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. All right. Hebrews chapter 8. Before we start reading, I want to start by saying this. Um, this chapter is a continuation of the argument which has been presented to us from previous chapters, and it's regarding the priesthood of Christ. You're going to hear me say priesthood of Christ over and over and over again because the, the main point really is about Jesus Christ and his priestly work. Um, I said one time before that we don't understand that we always need a mediator between God and us. Um, but yeah, the, the author of Hebrews has demonstrated that Jesus had to be a priest. Not of the Levitical order, but of the order of Melchizedek. Um, we have seen Melchizedek over and over and over again. You know him by now. But yeah, Jesus had to be a high priest, but not according to Levi. That's why, consequently, there must be a change in the law and the priesthood. The new priesthood of Christ is far more excellent than the priesthood um, found in Judaism. So chapter 8 is a continuation of the same thought of the superiority of Christ. Chapter 7 was about his person, but chapter 8 is about his ministry or his, the new covenant that he ministers. So chapter 8 continues the same thought of the superiority of Jesus Christ as a priest and also in a particular way show us there is a change in the nature of the covenant between God and his people. So this chapter is, can be divided in three parts. Depends on um, um, what school you follow. It can be 
verse 1 and 2, or it can be verse 1 and 3, but the first part is that the author is restating his main point and his argument about Jesus' priesthood. The second one would be verse two to, uh, 3 to 5 or 4 and 5. The second point is this. The author shows the need for Christ to be in heaven in order to perform his functions as a priest. And the third part, which is the most glorious, uh, one of the most glorious part in the Bible, is the author present, pre- presents Jesus Christ as the high priest of the new covenant. The new covenant is from, from verse 6 to 13. All right, let's read Hebrews 8, starting in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on heaven, in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has been a Christ has obtained a ministry that is in as much that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises for if the first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second verse 8 for he finds fault with them when he says Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them, to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is become obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Amen. So the first part we're going to start with is verse 1 and 2, where the author of Hebrews is restating 
everything he's been talking about. Um, and we're going to see a different aspect of it. In Hebrews 7, last time, we looked at the, new, the need for a new and a superior priest. A new and superior priest. Why? We're going to see a, for a couple of reasons. Perfection, number one, could not be attained to the priesthood of Aaron. Therefore, we need a superior one. Number two, perfection could not be attained through the law. The law was the foundation of the priesthood in the Old Covenant. The author of Hebrews says the commandment was weak and useless. No one could achieve perfection through the law. So we need a new priesthood. Number three, the Levitical priesthood was limited. Those who, were, those who ministered as priests under the Old Covenant were men full of weaknesses, full of sins. They were limited by time, space, and death. They could not continue their service forever. They were sinful, mortal men. Number four, the old covenant was destined to be set aside. The, the oath that the Lord sworn in Psalm 110 verse 4 was a sign, was a promise that the Lord will be making something new one day. So the Levitical priesthood, the law, the old covenant will be set aside one day. But Jesus, on the other hand, he is presented as a better high priest because he has a better office. Hebrews 7.22 says he is the guarantor of a better covenant. He has a better covenant. He ministers a better covenant. The priesthood of Jesus is better because, first, it provides a better hope through which we can draw near God. You see, the whole problem of men, and that's the problem since the beginning of time, we always need a mediator between God and us. Under the Old Covenant, God signed a contract with Israel and gave them the law, the sacrificial system, and the priesthood in order to allow them to come in his presence. But it was limited, and also it was for time. It had an expiry date. But in Jesus, we have a better option to draw near God in fact, it's not just a better option. It's the only option we have to draw near God. The famous verse, John 14, verse 6, when Thomas talked to Jesus, show us the Father. The Bible says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So number one, we have a better priesthood in Jesus because it provides a better hope through which we can draw near God. Number two, it's based on the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Hebrews says, he has an indestructible life. He is eternal. He's not limited by time, by space, or by death. When he died on the cross, on the third day, he rose again. And Paul says, I don't want to know nothing proclaim it um, amongst you except Christ and him crucified. But the gospel doesn't stop there. Christ rose again for our justification. So the priesthood of Jesus is better because um, it's based on the person of Jesus. Number three, it's based on his work, the work of Jesus. He's able to save to the uttermost. 
Hebrews 7.25, which means he's able to give us perfection. And the verse says it's because he always lives to intercede for us, for all who draw near God through Jesus Christ. So that's why Jesus is a better priest. And his priesthood is better. The covenant he ministers is better. And the Bible says that makes him the guarantor of a better covenant. So there will be a new contract with better terms in the new covenant. In fact, in in verse 6 of chapter 8, this is the conclusion that the author draw for us. Um, As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. So you see, the ministry of Christ, the old covenant, the new covenant, rather, and his service is more excellent than the old because he mediates a better it's based on better promises. All right, so verse 1 starts with, now the point in what we are saying is this. This opening st- statement is a way for the author to tell us that he's bringing this point home. He is honing in on his ultimate objective. He is bringing the focus closer to his argument. This word, rendered as the point, can be also translated the main point or the principal thing, but also that it can mean the sum, like the sum total of money, for example. In the Greek, they use it for if you bring a lump sum of money, like the, that's the whole of it. That's the sum of it. So conveying two ideas. He's continuing and summarizing everything he has been talking up to this point. And the next few verses after that will serve as a trampoline which will propel us onto more glorious truths one of the most glorious truths in Scripture. The point we have been saying, what has he been saying? The general reference can be the whole book of Hebrews, but in particular, it can be the section starting in chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 10, verse 18, talking about the priesthood of Christ. And we see different things about it. We see he was called by God, he's of a different order, He's a different kind. His, his nature is different. But also we're going to see the service, the sacrifices, the, the place where he ministers. All this is part of the new covenant and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So here, all the previous teaching of the epistle of Hebrews reach their climax because the priesthood of Christ is the most distinguishing doctrine or theme of this letter. Now I want you to look at this. We have such a high priest in the verse. If you look back a little bit in verse 26 of chapter 7, we have the same sentence. 
Verse 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we have such a high priest. So, he is continuing the same idea. But they are different. He is looking at different aspects of that idea. One, chapter 7 is showing us Christ being a high priest on earth. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, is showing us Christ, a high priest in heaven. One is focusing on his ministry on earth. The other one is focusing on his ministry in heaven. On earth, he offered sacrifice, but the sacrifice of himself. In heaven, he continued his ministry in the true temple of God. A footnote that I have here, there is a misconception that Christ became a high priest after he got to heaven. I have a quote here from A.W. Pink talking about this. Um, he's quoting someone named George Smeaton. Or Smeaton. Um, he said, rightly did George Smeaton declares, uh, did George declare Hebrews 7.26 and Hebrews 7.27 show Christ on earth as both priest and a sacrifice. So Christ on earth was the priest. He offered a sacrifice, but the sacrifice was of himself. The word such in verse 26 refers not to the previous verses in chapter 7, but to the following verse, which is verse 27, and also is a reference to chapter 8, verse 1. The qualifications described here, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, are descriptive of what he was when he was on earth, when he was brought into contact with sin and sinners. Again, mark well this expression, Jesus was made higher than the heavens. Who was Jesus? Our high priest was made higher than the heavens. Note also that last clause of verse 27, this he did once when he offered up himself. Who did the this? Who is the he? Is the Lord Jesus, of course. So Jesus is seen as a high priest and also he offered a sacrifice of himself. As we were told in Hebrews 2.17, he was a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So Christ, as a high priest, we saw that in Hebrews 2, he made propitiation for the people of God. When did that happen? At the cross. Romans 3.25 plainly declares that he made propitiation at the cross. And again, we have language like, languages like Hebrews 4.14 Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed through the heavens. So he did not enter heaven to become a priest, but he was already a priest when he passed to the heavens. This is plain, end of quote. So this author is saying that Jesus did not uh, become a high priest after he got to heaven. He already was a priest because he offered himself as a sacrifice here on earth. 
And the author is going to mention something in, in verse 4. We're going to see that in a few minutes. But that word, such a high priest, or that expression, linked, linked the two uh, verses, um, chapter 7 and chapter 8. But like I said, one focusing on his ministry on earth, and the other one um, shows his ministry in heaven, in the true tent of God. But this high priest, what does, it, what does the Bible say? What does the, the author continue to say about, it, about him? The second part of verse 1. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This is the most exalted position ever. So our high priest, Jesus Christ, is, he occupies the most exalted position I remember when we were looking at um, verse 1, we saw that Christ had to become lower and he had to become the highest. So he was born in a manger, the lowest place possible for someone to be born. But also he was elevated in glory. He was exalted in glory and sat at the right hand of God, which is the highest position ever, so that he can encompass all in all. Jesus is our all in all. But this is a way for the author to say that he went to the lowest position ever and now he, he's elevated to the highest position ever. So he's our all in all. He's in an exalted position. Again, chapter 7 says he was exalted above the heavens, verse 27. But chapter 8 gives us where that position, where that location is. It's at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The first thing we see in that verse is that Christ is seated. He's not standing like the priest. The priest, they were, they were, there was not, no chair in the temple for them or in the tabernacle. They were ministering all day long. I mean, the Bible doesn't say they, they, they had chair, but you might assume there was, but... The Bible doesn't say that. So you assume that they were constantly standing and working. But Jesus, he is seated. When you have a busy day of hard work, you in the house or in your garage fixing something in the car, or you don't sit down. You're like going, going, going. You're standing, you're doing something. But at the end of the day, when you're done, like you sit down, you relax, you know, you get some water, you cool down a little bit, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's done. So Jesus is not like the, the Levitical high priest. He's like, he's seated. Same thing in, in um, chapter 1, verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down. The work was done. Every, everything was accomplished for us at the cross, it was finished. When he offered up himself on the cross, then he entered heaven and sat down, showing that the work is completed. Another thing to note, throughout the Bible, the right hand is seen as a place of power. 
of honor or of status. So when the Bible makes the statement that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, it is affirming that he is of equal status to the Father. They have the same status in the Godhead. He has the same status as God the Father. The right in general in the Bible has a lot of significance. You remember when Joseph um, was um, bringing his children to uh, his father, Jacob, to bless them. So um, he, he put Manasseh in front of the right hand of Jacob and Ephraim on the left hand. But Jacob, what he did, he crossed his arms. And Joseph was trying to like undo that, but it, it, he said, let it be so. I know what I'm doing. I want to do it this way. So the right in general in the Bible has like significance for the, for the people. The right is associated with what is honorable, wise, approved of God, worthy of eternal blessings. And we can say that about Jesus, right? Number one, he's worthy to receive all honor, right? Jesus is worthy to receive honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Number two, Jesus is called the wisdom of God in Luke 11, 49. Paul calls Jesus the power and the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1 and also in Colossians 2. Number three, Jesus is not only, Jesus is the only appointed by God to be our representative before him. So he is approved by God. And number four, Jesus is called God blessed forever. So like I said, like the right, he is associated with honor, wisdom, approved of God, worthy of blessing, and Jesus fulfilled all that for us. Now, when you associate the right hand of God, this expression, it means power. It means deliverance, ability to save, ability to rescue from an enemy. I remember when I was little, my mom had a friend, and every day at noon she would she would pray, and we could hear her next door, and she would pray in Psalm 118. Um, 18 to, uh, verse 13 to 17. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. And there it is. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. This is about the right hand of God. So the right hand of God saves, sustains, delivers, protects, answers prayers, guides, works, and acts with power and justice. Can we say the same thing about Jesus? Jesus saves, he sustains, he delivers, he protects, he answers prayers, he guides us, he works and acts with power and justice. 
that's glorious for us. We know that that's our high priest. He is seated at the right hand of God. Before we read verse 2, the last thing I wanted to add about verse 1, this verse can be compared to two other verses in Hebrews. The first one is Hebrews 1, 3, and the second one is Hebrews 12, verse 2. These three verses are conveying the same idea of exaltation, but the rendering is slightly different for each of them because they each focuses on a specific role of Jesus. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, let me read it for you real quick. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this is the part I wanted to focus on. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The second verse is verse 12, verse, chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in our verse here in chapter 8, Jesus, uh, our high priest, is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Do you see the little difference? Um, so that was Hebrews 1, 3. The second one was Hebrews 12, 2. And the third one is in our passage here, Hebrews 8, 1. So the little difference is this. In Hebrews 1, there is no mention of throne. Because the, the personal glory of Christ as son is, is, is in view. Okay? The son is already on the throne, so he doesn't have to mention the throne. In Hebrews 12, the focus is the man Christ who received reward for his work for us. And he received a throne. But um, the word majesty is not there. But eight include both the throne of the majesty in heaven to show that the high priest received a honor, a dignified a position. Why? Why does he have to say that? Because simply the other priests, they don't have that. They don't have this um, status. They don't have this position. And in fact, they, they were mortal men. Um, remember Eli, for example, he's, he died a like falling back, falling back. They say like falling back is like a sign of judgment. Like he, he died, um, and the Bible said he was a heavy man, and his neck broke. Um, but Jesus, he's a high priest who received a throne and honor at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. So that shows his superiority. Now, verse, verse two. 
We have such a high priest, um, and verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. This verse should be like a blessing for us. Not only for those believing Jews who wanted to leave Judaism, Remember, the author of Hebrews wanted to see in Jesus they have a high priest. They don't have to go to the Levitical priest that was in the temple at that time. But in Jesus, they have a high priest. And he's ministering in the holy places. The true tent. So there is, this word true is not, it's, a, it's not one is true, one is false. But it's like the, the real thing, the actual thing. Um, the actual tent of the Lord. And I like the fact that the author of Hebrews does not present the story of our redemption like those fairy tales we have these days, right? Um, You know, Jesus did not just suffer, then died on the cross, then rose again, then went to heaven, then he's seated at the right hand of God, then lived happily ever after. He had to do something. What he's doing, he's ministering for his church. He's ministering for us. He's a minister in the holy places. You know, royalty, they don't work. Uh, kings and queens, they don't work. But Jesus, he couldn't sat down. He could, I mean, he could. But he doesn't do that. He ministers for us. He intercedes for us. He condescended himself with work, with ministry, for us. That's a guarantee, not a guarantee, but that's a boost for us to, whenever we are tempted to throw in the towel, to be discouraged, to give up. Jesus did not give up. I mean, he was, you know, humiliated on the cross. He he died a shameful death. And then when he received glory and, uh, and honor, that's, he could like, okay, it's done. Let me relax. No, but he continues to minister for each and every one of us. That's why I like Daniel 7. I see one like the ancient of, let me read it. Let me read it. Daniel 7. Verse 9. The Ancient of Days reigns. As I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand of thousands served him, and then ten thousand times, ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And books were open. 
I looked then because of the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion, their dominion was taken away, but their lives was prolonged for a season and a time. I think I went too far. I wanted to see the ancient of day and one coming in the clouds. One second. But you see, there is one coming in the clouds, if someone can find it. So this is Jesus after making purification, coming into the clouds. So this coming into the clouds, sometimes people see it as he's coming down. But no, it's like coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days to receive the due reward of his work on the cross. Okay? So that depends on your eschatology, where you stand. Okay? But coming into the clouds doesn't mean coming down, but coming up into the presence of God. All right. That's all for the eschatology lesson today. Um, we get to continue. But this is glorious. Christ comes into the presence of the Lord, the Ancient of Days, and he could sit down and do, you know, enjoy that. But no, he continues and ministers for us. Now, the verse says, it's, where is he ministering? In the holy places. Where are those holy places? It's not in the temple. This is talking about heaven. The abode of God, our great high priest, is in the abode of God, in the presence of God himself, in heaven itself. The same is referenced in Hebrews 9.24 and Hebrews 10.19. So those heavenly places or those holy places are the place where the majesty of God or the glory of God is put on full display. That's where God dwells. The throne and around the throne. Those are the holy places, the most holy places. It's not on earth. It's not in the temple. It's not in the tabernacle. He is ministering in the holy places. He is ministering in heaven in the presence of God the Father. And the verse continues to say, Hebrews 8 verse 2. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. The word tent is our word tabernacle. It's the same word. So a tabernacle is a tent. A tent is a tabernacle. Sometimes like um, people, they, they have this big building and they have church and like, this is a tabernacle. We are the church. We are the true tabernacle. God dwells amongst his people. He put his spirit in us. That's what we're going to see in this new covenant. God puts his spirit in us and dwell in, among his people. So, this is our word tabernacle. And 
It refers to the tent where God was meeting with his people in the Old Testament. After they came out of Egypt, Israel needed a place to meet with God. But since they were wandering in the wilderness, they could not have a fixed place. So they had a portable tent, and they can roam around, and God would meet with them in that tent. So, the tabernacle or the tent in the Old Covenant was the meeting place between God and the people of Israel. And later on, the temple was the place where God met with his people. This verse is saying that Christ fulfilled his ministry in the tabernacle that the Lord had set up. It's not a tabernacle on earth, but it's a better one, one in heaven, in perfect heaven. The one on earth, the tabernacle on earth was real, but it could not accomplish salvation for us. Salvation is accomplishing the true tabernacle of God. So, I have a couple of things I want to say about this tabernacle. Some people say there is an actual tabernacle in heaven. Some other commentaries say it's like this is Jesus himself. Because the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a type of Jesus. In Colossians 2, he says, the fullness of the Godhead, the Godhead sorry, um, bodily dwell in him. The presence of God, uh, God dwelling in the Son, like when he was on earth, the, the Godhead. So the tabernacle was where God was dwelling, with the, and he would meet with the people. Some people say, this is Jesus. And also they, they say, because we have verses like not only Colossians, but First John's four, first, uh, John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. That word dwelt has tabernacle or the word for tabernacle as root. So you can say Jesus tabernacle among us. So saying that. This tabernacle in heaven is actually Jesus. I kind of like this idea. If you know my eschatology, you know, like, I like to spiritualize everything. So, so some commentators say that this tabernacle in heaven is Jesus himself. And I think that's true. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. The fullness of the God was pleased to dwell in him. So, this tabernacle can be Jesus, but it can be an actual tabernacle. We're not going to divide on, on that because regardless, Christ is there interceding and ministering for us. I had a... I have a... Something that A.W. Pink say about this verse. The verse continued to say a tent that the Lord set up not men. 
A.W. Pink says this, the Lord set up this tent, that set up is basically a reference to the virgin birth. A supernatural description or characteristic of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he also backs that up by saying, Hebrews 10, Jesus said, a body you have prepared for me. So this is a reference to the virgin birth when God overshadowed Mary, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and conceived Christ in, in her womb. That word set up carries the idea of fixing a tent. You have the stakes, you have the pillars, you have the fastening ropes, and you're fixing something up and make it ready. That's why you have the word erected later on. So Panks continues his argument to say this denotes the divine origin of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And no human father was involved in this. It was set up by the Lord. All right. That's the, the end of my first part. Quickly, the second part. Verse 1 and 2 is the first part. So it, the, author is reiterating, he, uh, the author is reiterating whatever he was saying about Jesus Christ, about his priesthood. And now he's going to give us, there was a need for Jesus Christ to be in heaven. He's going to give us the reason why Jesus needs to be in heaven to perform the functions of his office. Verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Verse 4. Now, if he were in heaven, I'm sorry, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was given you on the mountain. Looking at the time. So quickly... Verse 3 says, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also have something to offer. And we saw that already. Jesus simply is offering intercession for us. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices because he did that on earth, on the cross. There it is. He did that on earth, on the cross. But now, if Jesus was on earth, he could not be a priest at all. Why? Because he's from the tribe of Judah. But by law, only the tribe of Levi can offer and minister, can minister in the temple and offer sacrifices. Okay, that's what he's saying here. So Jesus, he has to be Ministering somewhere. That's why he has to be in heaven. 
But the glorious thing about this is that the things that happening on earth, they are a copy. They are a shadow. They are not the real thing. You know when the sun is like casting a shadow over an object, the shadow is not the real thing. So, Jesus has to be in heaven to offer sacrifices for us, but everything in the Old Covenant, everything in the Old Testament was pointing to that reality of Jesus ministering for us in heaven. Does that make sense? Jesus is in heaven right now, offering prayers, intercession for us. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to that. Everything was pointing to the fact that Jesus is right now interceding for us, ministering for us. I want to stop here because we have to go into the Lord's Supper. But as application for us, the first thing we can note it's better for you that Christ is right now in heaven at the right hand of the majesty of God interceding for you. Why? I said that many, like two or three times already. We have the accuser of our soul, Satan, continually accusing the brothers, continually accusing you, causing you to fall into sin. But you need Christ's intercessory work near the Father to show his wounds, to show his sides, to show his feet. I bled for this child of yours. I, I bled for Kenzie. I bled for Grace Church Austin. I bled for these people. Forgive them. Not only we have the enemy of our soul, we have our flesh. Our flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. We have the spirit of God, but also we have Jesus Christ praying for us. Temptation will come. Jesus said temptation will come. But God provides a way of escape. And when you, when you fall, the Bible says the wise fall six times or seven times and rise again. The Lord will provide a way for you to rise again. But when that happens, the enemy will be like, you see, like he sinned. He fell into sin, but Christ shows again his wounds, his side. I bled for this child of yours. Forgive him. The world is always there. Now we have all kind of debates and political debates and racial debates and all kind of things trying to distract you from the goal, trying to distract you from Christ. But you have Jesus near the Father in the heavenly places interceding for you. This should be an encouragement for us to persevere. Persevere until the end. 
persevere like it's, it's an encouragement for each and every Christian to continue until the end. Let's read um, Revelation. To the church, um, Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3. Verse 8, I know your works. This can apply to us. The Lord knows your works. He knows your, what you're going through. He knows your faithfulness. He knows your lack of faithfulness, but he knows your work. But he said, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but a lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that, that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, and this is the encouragement for us. Hold fast what you have so that no one can seize your crown. Verse 12, to the, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, who comes down from God out of heaven, and my own name. He who, hears, who, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hold fast what you have to the one who conquers. That's an encouragement for perseverance. He will give you the name of the temple of God. That's where he is. He's in heaven. And one day we're going to see him and rejoice with him. So let this be an encouragement for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you plan it this way, Lord. On earth, he offers himself as a sacrifice to make propitiation for our sin, to atone, atone for every sin. But in heaven, he ministers in the holy places for us. And that should be an encouragement to, to cause us to serve you, to serve Christ more. Help us, Lord. We need you. Amen.